0: I'm now down at Marriott, just off of the River Thames. This is the host venue for the Education World Forum. Uh, so, lots of ministers from all around the world here today speaking about education and as part of our education innovation. And uh, I'm delighted to be here with Ron Reid from South by Southwest Edu. So, Ron, hello. <laughs>
1: hello, Sophie. It's so nice to be here. I, you know, I'm not in London often, but uh, when I am. And in, in here we are in the shadow of Big Ben, uh, as you say, down uh, near the river uh, at the uh, EWF conference. It's lovely to be here.
0: So what, what did you see today and who did you connect with? And what was the kind of main ethos of today all about?
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm really fond of the Education World Forum, and I uh, I consider the organizers uh, Dominic and Gavin to be uh, good colleagues, and I admire the work that they do. Um, they're you know bringing together probably more than a hundred ministers of Ed from all over the world to talk about innovations, and uh, and and I always find the conversations fascinating. I, they uh, they began the uh, conference with an Education Fast Forward program this morning that had uh, Andreas from the OECD speaking along with Karen Cater from Digital Promise, several prominent voices from around the world. It was really, really fascinating. And for my part, I'm always interested to see in many ways how common the challenges are internationally. We all have students that we, you know, struggle to support and teachers that we want to grow their proficiencies and assessments to measure proficiencies and alignment with workforce to fuel employability. And so I think I'm I'm always taken with how common these challenges are more than how different they are. But Mm. it's always fascinating to learn more.
0: And for you in particular, so you have uh, South by Southwest Edu coming up in March. I do, and indeed. you're very self-deprecating about your team, looking after all that, but I'm sure underneath it all there's probably a lot lot going on between now and March. But I wondered for the listeners if you could highlight some of the exciting things coming up and, you know, our second audience is in the U.S., so, you know, what things they can expect and for the international people coming oh, along.
1: I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And yeah, we're, we're super excited. This will be our seventh year to host South by Southwest EDU. You know, many of your listeners may be familiar with South by Southwest from the music conference that we've done for 30 years or our tech or film festival, all of which are popular. The education one, frankly, is the fastest growing vertical of all of the South by Southwest. And I'm really proud of the way the community has sort of embraced it. So so maybe a couple things at a high level that we're excited about and, and seeing at, at South by EDU. I mean, first of all, I, I can't sit here in London without acknowledging that we're seeing a big growth in international participation. To have, uh, have you, Sophie, involved in the event as a media partner. And, and again, I, I think as we reflect on really growing a community of, of education innovators around the globe, you know, uh, the work here that you're doing in London and beyond, uh, work in Wise. We were in Singapore with uh, EdTech Singapore a, a little earlier this year. We find just fascinating. So I'm really happy to see a big concentration of, of, of international voice at the event. I, I was sharing with you earlier, I had the, the pleasure of being in Moscow at an event called EdCrunch, where they're kind of scrambling on blended learning proficiencies and protocols uh, for that country. Uh, they'll be represented at EDU, uh, of course, the UK in strong fashion, but also, I think, Japan and uh, in Israel and Australia and Canada and a host of others. So we're, we're really happy to be a platform for international discussion. Beyond that, maybe two other things I'll, I'll see happening a little bit more broadly one is seeing a big explosion in sort of immersive programming and content, uh, AR, VR, Maker, uh, all of these high-interest student engagement solutions are really, I, I think, finding great traction and energy. Uh, the, the other thing, uh, in, in a little different uh, environment that, has taken, uh, that is surprised in a pleasant way, uh, my view of things, has been the, the growth of higher ed participation at the event this year. If I step back and think about it, I think in round numbers, our community this year at South by EDU will be probably 30 percent K-12 primary, elementary primary, um, probably 20 percent higher ed, um, probably 30 percent ed tech entrepreneurs in business. And we've seen a big growth in nonprofits engaging at the event. So, about 20% of our community are from the nonprofit mm. sector. And, you know, across that, we'll sprinkle in a number of policy folks and parents and students themselves. But in big chunks, those would be fair portrayals of the community we're looking forward to seeing in March.
0: Okay, excellent. And then, how about uh, some of the speakers that you've got lined up this year?
1: Again, you know, um, we. we we have, as I'm fond of saying, we have more fun than the law usually allows. I mean, we, we crowdsource the majority of our program, and uh, in, including even keynotes and others uh, from that uh, panel picker process. So first of all, I'd encourage your listeners to, to lend their insights and contribute to the content at South by DU. We, we are hungry for their opinions and participation. Um, if, if I just reflect for a moment on some of our major stage speakers, our keynotes, I think they both represent the unusual nature of South by Southwest, but but also sort of our roots in the, in the sector very deeply. So um, I'm tickled that our opening keynote uh, is a, a professor from Teachers College Columbia in New York, a gentleman by the name of Chris Emden. Chris is uh, going to be, I believe, addressing really urban education, the challenge of engaging inner-city youth as we experience here in London and all around the world. Um, for Chris, I think hip-hop is a big part of his means of accessing and tapping into where students are. You know, we talk a lot about putting the student at the center, and I think Chris is going to have some insights, or at least many of our students, and how, uh, how to reach them in order to teach them. So I'm really tickled to have Chris on the program. Also, uh, we have uh, Sarah Goldrick-Rab is a, a keynote speaker. Sarah's really proficient, has been chronicling higher ed initiatives and in fact, is coming off of a multi-year survey and study of, of students in higher ed in the US. And I think as always there's a really vibrant conversation going on as the cost and value of college, its alignment with employability, and I think she'll help advance that discussion. But, but as an example, again, of sort of this intersection of culture and learning that we think is in many ways the sweet spot for South by uh, EDU, I'm, I'm super excited to have a uh, gentleman you know, uh, Sophie, mm-hmm. a guy by the name of Tim Ferriss on the program. Tim is a popular author and podcaster in the U.S. He's uh, written several books. Uh, The 4-Hour Body uh, gave a lot of insights uh, as to, you know, running your body. The same way The 4-Hour Chef uh, gave some great strategies. At a deeper level, both of these books are, are less about the body or food than they are about hacking learning and really... Hmm. looking for shortcuts to have a difference in the world. So I'm droning on too long, but I no, think I, I, Chris I, and Sarah... I,
0: I was just I musing because um, I think if I took it right back, uh, probably reading the four-hour work week was one of the catalysts to me leaving my job uh, and launching a podcast. And not... Um, you know, there's not. it's not to say that I agree with everything in it, but I think just... Um, yeah, it makes you think about things differently. So, yeah, very excited to be yeah, one, one of the
1: things that stuck with me was he, I think, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll misrepresent this, so please read his book to get the true <laughs> scoop on it, but I think he describes 10 or 12 statements that if you master or if he masters, believes gives him proficiency with a language. Hmm. And there are statements in future and past tense and with key vocabulary, and he, he generally feels that if he can deliver those 8, 10, 12 sentences with proficiency, and can master the language to do that in other languages that he can in fact use that. And so again, just a great example of a guy who is driven to learn out of sort of an insatiable desire internally and sort of less about the structures and Mm. credentialing than it is just about human to human pursuit of wanting to know. And that's what I love about having Tim on the program.
0: Awesome. And, um, the rest of your week, what does that look like?
1: Oh, I'm super, uh, again, super excited to be here. Um, you know my my team, as you say, is is really at home doing the hard work, and, and they know me well enough to say, "Get out of my hair, please." Um, you know, don't don't help us any further with this. They're they're in the final stages of really producing what was going to be a spectacular event. So I have the good fortune of running around and just promoting. So in addition to meeting folks like you and and attending the Ed World Forum, I'm looking to uh, looking forward to a, a quick day at Bet uh, before I scramble back to uh, to Texas, and then I've actually got uh, tours lined up where I'm in Boston and New York york and back in washington dc before the event to just you know sort of bang some symbols and uh, invite some folks to come down and, and visit with you and all the other folks at south by
0: amazing well i'm really really looking forward to it and uh everyone listening i will put in the the links and all the all the bits you need in the podcast show notes so thanks very much ron
1: oh thank you sophie always a pleasure to the conference center please enter your passcode followed by the pound sign or hash key
0: hello oh hello is that Ron it is is that
1: Sophie
0: it is yeah how are you doing
1: I'm doing pretty good, Sophie. How are you this morning or this evening? I guess in your world.
0: Yeah, it's quarter past four here. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Since
1: we were last together, it, it has been kind of fun, if crazy. <laughs> um, I actually have been up to Boston, where I was at a little ed tech event and, and doing some promotional stuff uh, for uh, for
0: Edu. First of all, thank you for coming on, and I know we had a little catch up in in London, but I suppose there's an opportunity to delve in a little bit more into your own background in education and well I think specifically on the sort of content slash publishing uh, side of things so maybe we could start with first off your your own background in education and ed tech and just for those listening who aren't aware about your sort of previous history before South by Southwest Edu and just a little bit of an overview of what were you what you were doing prior to this role.
1: Yeah, by all means, I'm I'm happy to. And um, as as we've uh, as we've shared and, and visited about briefly, uh, Sophie, uh, you know, long story short, my my best friend in high school is the guy that started South by Southwest, and so uh, he and I have been talking about South by Edu for a long, long time, uh, like twenty five years or or more, but. Um, my my personal background is while Roland was busy building South by Southwest Music and that evolved to include film uh, South by Film and, and South by Southwest Interactive, uh, my whole career was spent in Ed uh, sales and marketing curriculum development education technology. So uh, so briefly, I was a, a liberal arts major coming out of the University of Texas in Austin. I wasn't quite ready to leave uh, the college campus and uh, enter the harsh world, and so I discovered that they had these uh, textbook sales jobs where people would call on college campuses and so forth, and that sounded sort of appealing to me uh, as an English major. Um, I actually wound up getting involved in uh, elementary and high school sales in Texas. Uh, My very first job out of college was with a textbook publisher, um, Texas uh, has a, a large adoption process where they certify and approve textbooks for use throughout the 5 million students in the state. So it was a fairly significant business and very competitive. But my first entr- you know, introduction to education uh, sales and marketing was uh, with, with textbooks in the elementary and secondary area. Mm. So it's been a long, uh, I spent you know, a few years doing that, became a regional manager and worked in a number of, of U.S. markets, Um, I I then wound up uh, throwing in with, I think I was employee number four, uh, with an education technology startup that uh, we we wound up calling ourselves Optical Data. And uh, Optical Data essentially published laser video discs, um, huge archived collections of images and graphics and motion video clips to support instruction and uh early on we were uh, we were looking at developing a program that would complement um, elementary science textbooks that were in use so that we could you know help students see and understand science before they read about it functionally was our was our uh keen approach to it but as we began working on it, we realized that, well, that if in fact we were to uh, create narratives to support those visuals, and if we were to provide activities for students and assessments uh, and supports for teachers, we could actually have an alternative to a, a traditional printed textbook. And so uh, so we began uh, developing what we, uh, what we titled Windows on Science, an elementary science curriculum, and it's differentiation and distinction was it was not a textbook program but but really a technology based program again teachers would use images to sort of introduce and establish prior knowledge with learners and then you know there were a, a variety of activities and reading assignments and other things that sort of aligned to that but um but it was it was very well received although at that time the laws uh defined textbooks in ways that restricted the market to ink on paper and, and literally hardbound textbooks uh, yeah. as a, a solution. So anyway, I, I went to work and had some success uh, changing the definition of textbooks so it would permit technology to apply and, and uh, compete for those funds. And long story short, after several years of development and, and pre-work in the Texas market, uh, we wound up having a really big win and took, I, I think, a 30% market share in an elementary science adoption. Uh, we doubled the revenues of Optical Data. I think we went from 15 million to 30 million, and uh, U.S. We wound up growing the company to uh, a couple hundred employees. Um, and then, it, as I tell the story, we had a party that lasted a decade. Um, we cratered the company uh, and sold it to McGraw Hill. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, The the reality is really the technology platforms were moving quickly. You know, CD-ROMs emerged, uh, the Internet uh, exploded. And and so, you know, functionally, laser video disk was leapfrogged from a technology standpoint very quickly. But if I look back on it, I I remain, you know, proud of the work of of sort of helping open up textbook funds to uh, technology-based solutions. So uh, so again, I, I spent probably too long of my career, maybe a, a little over a decade doing that. Um, and from there, I, I wound up joining a, uh, some friends who had started a curriculum development company, and we looked a lot like a publisher. We developed software and electronic materials, assessment items, teachers' editions, workbooks, and so forth uh, to complement um, textbook programs that were currently in use. So I, I looked a lot like a publishing company, but... I had no imprint. All the work we did was work for hire, and we had clients like Pearson and McMillan and McGraw-Hill and Harcourt and Houghton Mifflin back in the day. Um, and so, in any event, we, I, I did that for almost a decade. Um, we wound up selling that company to uh, Thompson Learning. That's now become Cengage, but uh, Thompson acquired uh, the company uh, I remained with them for a, a couple of years as general manager, and and then exited to uh, to begin doing some uh, some other consulting. Uh, it was really then that I I started thinking about South by Southwest uh, Edu, and I did have one other you know kind of fun entrepreneurial uh, exercise and startup experiences. I was uh, consulting before launching South by Edu. Uh, I had some uh, some friends who were developing a, a digital uh, teacher resource for content area teachers in high schools uh, to better help them support the needs of their English language learner uh, population. Uh, we know elementary teachers are a little more um, sensitive to language development and uh, and such. I think as you move up in the curriculum, uh, the emphasis is much more on the content than, than really the, uh, the, the cognitive development of, mm. of the learner. So we wound up creating a bunch of, of strategies to help the biology teacher make their content more accessible for their ELL students, and the same for other discipline areas in social studies and mathematics, et cetera. Um, that was a, another product that was state-adopted in, uh, in the state of Texas. Uh, But then in in sort of an interesting shift, the state was looking at at more cost-effective ways of providing digital content. And so while the the product was priced on a per-teacher basis of, uh, I think, $100 a teacher, there were 150,000 high school teachers at that time in Texas, so it was like a $15 million U.S. market (laughs) I um, wound up visiting with the commissioner of education and the state board of education, and uh, and they agreed that they would prefer to license uh, the product, make it available to all 150,000 high school teachers, and as a result, uh, remit a, a much lower per teacher cost than if they uh, if individual teachers had purchased the thing. So that was really the first statewide license of instructional content uh, in the in the state of Texas. And again provided an interesting model as to how does one get more cost effectively um, digital digital content into uh, into classrooms so all, all of that is to say I, I was doing that while my buddy was building south by uh, Southwest music film and interactive um, and uh, so in, I guess it was 2008, 2009, there was a big recession in the U.S. and funds were cut dramatically for uh, for education. Mm. And at that point, it was sort of clear that, you know, if if teachers couldn't continue to do what they'd been doing, if, if uh, schools needed to find different ways of, of providing services because of an erosion of their resources financially, then it felt like it was a good time to consider launching South by Southwest EDU uh, because, again, we felt like the, the disruption would, uh, would result in a, a, richer, a richer conversation about the future of teaching and learning. So you're, you're very kind to, to let me ramble on, so I, I, hope, I hope I haven't gone on uh, at too much length. But, again, proud, proud of the background and, and felt like it, it put me in a really nice position to appreciate some of the opportunities and challenges yeah. um, as we were on South by
0: Well, it's really interesting um, and especially at the moment for for a couple of reasons because, um, well, one is I'm reading um, Drive by Daniel Pink and in there he he refers to the, um, I suppose, the competition uh, between Encarta and Wikipedia and the unlikely winner at that time. So, you know, you've got all of the resource and the money and the sort of market leader in Encarta and then obviously this new sort of crowdsource model coming through and and, and wondering what your thoughts on that were at the time because I suppose that was uh, around the late uh, 80s when that happened Um, and then the other thing is is that the last episode of the EdTech podcast that went out was uh, at an event called EdTech for Publishers and so there you know you've got lots of those publishers that you mentioned so the Pearsons, the McGraw-Hills, the Oxford University Press, Um, and then um, you know the AI companies, the VR companies, the audio book publishers and I thought it'd be interesting to get your perspective on I suppose to what extent content and publishing is always balancing um, I suppose ticking off what's in the curriculum and then also thinking about sort of supplementary resources. So you mentioned on your laser video discs you know you would have Uh, whether that was film or images and sort of searchable supportive uh, supporting resources so it's just you know to what extent you think things have moved on or the same questions are still being asked and just getting that uh, review of of, you know over the last uh, 10 years or more
1: yeah, I, I think a fair point and and you know, I, I hadn't really thought about the Encarta Wikipedia uh, sort of exercise and experience uh, until you you remind me of it, uh Sophie and and I think it it's it's kind of a, a poignant um, you know, uh, time to reflect on and look back on. I think, you know, again from sort of a classic and and structure of education standpoint, um the 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 issues surrounding Wikipedia and the crowdsourced I think is one of the really first vibrant crowdsourced models. There was a great deal of of um, skepticism mm. as to the vibrancy and accuracy of the data, and and so I think that a really powerful uh, evolution to appreciate the power of community today compared to where it was then. But I, I think that you know I, I recall a, a lot of. Uh, you know a lot of focus on you know sort of um, oh uh, uh, media literacy and uh, vetting and verification of supports. And mm-hmm. as the the internet is coming on, the um, you know the imperative of footnotes and so forth mm-hmm. to sort of speak with the veracity and confidence uh, to to the data that's being presented. And so you know obviously, I think the you know society has become much more, uh, comfortable with and appreciative of their direct voice and contribution through the uh, through the crowdsource environment, but I and so I, I think that there was a reluctance on the part of the industry and the sector at large to sort of recognize and embrace uh, these. I, I recall you know running around with this you know, the shiny laser video disc. And, you know, I was early on the laughingstock of a mm-hmm. lot of the major, major publishers. Um, it, it amazed me that at such a point as we were successfully approved and, and really competing in the marketplace, you know, in, in a matter of, uh, of two weeks, uh, all of these uh, uh, core textbook publishers uh, promptly had laser video discs as supplements to accompany them. Um, and so, uh, so, again, I think the transition is, is much more authentic and sincere. Um, I think the digital transformation that, um, that, you know, we see the marketplace going through with access to, you know, to open source content, to the, the power of the Internet, uh, crowdsourced and, you know, uh, kind of locally developed uh, programming and content. Um, is, is a, you know, is a challenging opportunity for uh, the way business had forever been done up to that point in terms of a small number of prominent providers who really owned the market. So I, I think the, the market, you know, little players like optical data helped sort of expand the recognition that there were, there were resources that were compelling beyond the, the usual suspects in terms of providers and And I think, like you know like good businesses, if I reflect on you know the majority of the the larger companies, they've become you know much more aggressive in terms of really driving uh digital transformation mm-hmm. I think appropriately they're they're doing so in response to the marketplace um again, optical data we were we were pretty far ahead of our time uh we were we were lucky that we experienced a little bit of success if if fleetingly. Um, but uh, but it's a it's a dangerous place to be, and you know we were a scrappy little startup with uh, initially you know a handful of employees. Um, it's a different enterprise when you're looking at a Pearson or a McGraw Hill, who are multi-billion-dollar you know U.S. multinational you know conglomerates with you know deep entrenched relationships and uh, and and opportunities for impact, but. I, I look uh, across that uh, that landscape of large publishers and, and believe those that are most, you know, vibrant today have been those who are most successful at really embracing that transformation that the market is, I think, inviting as we look at personalized and blended learning and, you know, really how to facilitate learning anytime, anywhere, which has been long standing reference, but I, I think has been a bit more challenging to realize.
0: You mentioned as well the, um, the, the the changes you made to the funding mechanism for textbooks and sort of broadening the definition of uh, resources and learning to open that up to new resources that you're developing. I mean, in terms of today, is that pretty much concrete in terms of that funding being available for a, a wide availability of resources for, from everything from printed textbooks to uh, more digital resources. I mean, is there any um, fear that that would be reversed, or is that does that look pretty solid to you? Yeah, I think you
1: know certainly every uh, in in the U.S. at least. Mm-hmm. And if you permit me to kind of frame my my response to that, where I have you know some some grander intimacy than more broadly, mm-hmm. you know certainly there are, there are differences from state to state, and that's one of the challenges for. You know, for edtech companies, really looking at the marketplace. Uh, the funding is, in some instances, there are federal supports for certain initiatives that are that are relevant for product implementation and for professional development support. Um, and but yet, every state has generally kind of unique processes for their instructional materials budgets and uh, and distributions. You know, a, a short a short story from an old guy, Sophie. Uh, back in the day in the state of Texas, they would select a single program uh, for each curriculum. So if you were the successful publisher whose reading program was adopted in Texas, you did not go door to door to compete with other reading programs for that uh, school district's uh, business. Everybody in the state got that program, mm. and... Uh, and, and now that would have been back in oh my goodness you know the, the early in the you know 1940s 1950s uh, that pretty quickly changed where they said okay well w- we should provide more local um, flexibility not every school necessarily is uh, driven with the same requirements or needs so they then came up with in Texas a list of five companies that would be approved then at that point they would go out and go door to door and and compete uh those five programs uh for that and and today it is uh, it has evolved to a much more open environment um where the pro- uh, the state continues to review and certify programs uh that are accessible to uh, to you know to to districts to implement and they've been approved by the you know the policy makers et cetera but districts are, are less uh, required to uh, to implement them. Um, increasingly, school districts receive an allotment of funding for instructional materials. They have the recommendations of the you know education agency as to the vetted and approved programs. But ultimately, the schools have much more flexibility whether they embrace those programs, other programs, uh, or you know uh, or or, uh, or solutions for it. So I think we've seen the. The the sort of uh, monopoly on uh, that market uh, really evolve uh, very dramatically. I, I, I should I should say though one of the differences is uh, and, and I think you know politically one of the realities is you no know, it's it's how do I say I think there is an economy and and cost savings available when uh, a state such as Texas says. Okay, we're not going to buy five million readers at an average cost of a hundred bucks a reader this year. We're going to give those funds directly to schools so they can buy whichever reading program uh, they believe best meets their need. Sometimes uh, the it gives the the state, I believe, a little greater control over their budget uh, in that respect. And so I, I know. As the, the process unfolds, I certainly hear a lot about local schools having to contribute more per, you know more local funds for their purchases than exclusively through you know state funding mechanisms. So I think there is an economic driver there's certainly a, a market driver uh, going on uh, and, and again a, against the backdrop of really affording local control and autonomy to schools to, to select those materials which best meet their needs it does permit the state a little more wiggle room as to exactly how much they provide those individual districts mm. to implement those resources.
0: It was really interesting because um, I interviewed um, uh, Professor Brian Subirana from MIT at uh, Web Summit and um, I mean his fear with EdTech, um, he had some quite funny turns of phrases with it, but uh, was, you know, he was concerned that um, perhaps that it would become a sort of chase to the bottom in terms of value and the quality it was providing being sort of second to the cost savings that it was able to provide. Um, so, I mean, I don't know what your your thoughts on, on that are in terms of balancing the two.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, uh, my, my personal experience has been, you know, if, if I as I look at uh, solutions that are in the marketplace, and, and and I think this is fortunately changing a lot. And, and again, Sophie, we visited in the past about the the expanded role and and growth of the edupreneur and practitioners really involved in this conversation. I think early on in the edtech craze, there was a, there was a, a belief and a recognition that the the technology offered uh, proficiencies and efficiencies that you know would uh, could could improve and and uh Know disrupt and reform and refine you know the uh, the, uh, um, the the processes of, of teaching and learning and then I think there was a, a grand faith and a f- attention and focus on the tech as the solution. I, I think as, as more ed tech companies enter the market, they're increasingly aware that the the market itself, the landscape in ed tech, is is you know is quite unique. Um, you know you're selling to customers who are not the ultimate consumers. If we think about building curriculum for learners that are marketed to administrators or to teachers, um, I, I think that, that again there is a, a nuance to the realities of the classroom and of to, you know, sort of school governance um, that uh, that are often you know, more prominent and more relevant than the particular technology. I think the yeah. thing I've, I've always come back to is that, you know, and we, we sometimes build, a, you know, a, a, a an aircraft carrier when we need a John boat. I mean, <laughs> a, the classroom teacher has, you know, precious few minutes in the day to accomplish all that he or, or she or she do. And and so the learning curve and and the movement of innovation into schools, I, I think, is often you know a, a bridge too far for many places. But I think again, um, marketers and developers in ed tech are increasingly sensitive to the nuance of the market and the sensitivity to minutes in the day, the the purchasing process. We're seeing a lot of focus on procurement at South by Southwest Edu and and how some of the current structures and, and processes of bidding in the US and of approving and vetting and securing uh resources for schools are sometimes you know cumbersome and, and ultimately don't serve the market well. So I think there is a big shift going on as to how to look at purchasing and innovation in this sector. How sometimes old practices have uh, inhibited uh, and and, uh, and and discouraged the embrace of, of innovation and looking at, at better processes to really encourage that.
0: Well, um, I mean, for anyone listening who's attending South by Southwest Edu or even thinking of, you know, either um, domestically or internationally launching a an ed tech product uh, in the U.S. Um, with your sort of previous uh, record, so obviously with one of those startups that was gaining thirty percent market share and going and negotiating with the policymakers and so on, if you had a message to um, some of the startups or some of those businesses um, who are negotiating a new uh, education landscape and one that you know is obviously seeing a new um, education secretary come in what are the things that you would advise them to look out for or, you know, which decision makers should they be thinking about? And um, are there any things coming up that you think they should be aware of as well?
1: Oh, goodness. Um, Yeah, a a few things. I I think, you know, as as earlier alluded, and again, I I think this is is more second nature than perhaps it, it, it once was. But you know, I, I recall from my startup days um, some good counsel that I received at one point that in, instead of uh, talking 80 percent of the time, I should be listening 80 percent of the time. And so I think that, again, there is there is a powerful seduction to innovation in the startup and the. Uh, you know the founder CEO conversation and the initial pilots and the energy and the enthusiasm and the excitement of that, which is really palpable and and lovely and and inspiring. I, I think that there is again a real sensitivity to understanding the market, seeing what problems this wealth so- solves. Um, mm. You know, another observation I have is that so often when something goes in the front door of a of a of a school building, something's going to get you know pushed out the back door. There's again just an overconsumption of minutes in the day uh, for this. Um, but I, I do think on the good news side that um, if, if as an entrepreneur I, I would reflect on it, I, I think some of the. The changes in uh, the administration in the U.S., and I, I think it's a, a general uh, a general perception. We'll see to what degree it's really merited and, and borne out, um, but that uh, it's likely that states and local authorities will have grander, you know, uh, say. Uh, I, I think the uh, the general sense is there will be less dictates from, um, you know, from the the federal government and greater greater local control and flexibility. I think that is a bit of a shift from, you know, a, a, a very supportive, uh, funding, uh, uh, supportive, uh, Department of Ed who use funds to really drive change. And I'm sure that will continue, um, to a great degree. But we're certainly hearing a lot about the, uh, the revived, uh, and, 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 and sort of revived presence of local decision making of state authority, uh, as it uh, aligns with education initiatives and practices. Um, And at the end of the day, I I think the education sector is really one that is all about relationships. And, um, you know, it's one of the things that we love about uh, our work here at South by Southwest EDU is, you know, we're familiar with a number of business convenings and pitch programs and opportunities for entrepreneurs to, you know, to, to receive some recognition you know, what's really critical from our world view is that we put them in the context of, you know, thousands of mm. practitioners and classroom teachers and administrators. We think that that, uh, that that dialogue is really critical and powerful and is one that we really enjoy championing. I, I should share with you as well, Sophie, I'm really tickled. We've got, uh, you know, a really nice international array of ed tech startups uh, coming to, to South by EDU this year from You know, certainly the UK and from Europe, but I I know increasingly uh, from Asia, Japan, um, from, uh, we've got a a contingent from Russia uh, joining us. We're seeing new uh, interest and participation out of Mexico. Uh, Canada has long been uh, prominent at South by EDU. So we love, we love attracting international ed tech entrepreneurs and You know, for my work and and travel around the world the last couple years, um, I've been taken with, in many ways, the the sort of similarity of challenge, uh, um, be it, you know, in Asia or in uh, Europe or in the U.S. I mean, there are fundamental questions about, you know, sort of skills and skills development, uh, assessment to determine mastery, employability of students, you know, and student engagement uh, that is going on um and so i i I'm, I'm always taken with the, the there there are many more things in common than there are different in these uh in these uh, conversations we have around the country briefly i I'll, I'll share I was at a very cool event in Moscow called ed crunch um They were all over blended learning and teacher proficiency and you know connectivity and Yeah, I think conversations that we are all sharing in and I I don't know what I expected, but I found that somewhat surprising and and intriguing and interesting to me.
0: And I mean, from also when you were involved in this years ago, when you were sort of developing up the or even in the first bit in terms of publishing sales and then developing up your own startups um, and exiting from those. Are there any um, books, resources or people that really sort of shaped you that you go back to always quote from or think about in terms of framing, um, you know, s- some of those experiences that you've had that you think would be uh, you'd like to share with people listening in as well?
1: Oh, you're very kind. Um... You know, I, I, perhaps perhaps more than resources, it mm-hmm. was uh, it, it, at least something that's always been a sense to me is that, you know, for a very busy, you know, education sector who are chartered with, you know, the, 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 the learners who are in front of them today, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, innovation, and, and I think we've seen this over the last, you know, decades, um, I mean, it's a slow process. It's an incremental process. It is... You know, not a sector that takes risk lightly, uh, particularly when they factor in the equation of the learners that are affected today and and in the process. So I, I you know my my personal uh, approach has has served me well. I, I don't know that it is a, a recipe uh, for for the moving forward. Um, but I, but I think change that is within an arm's reach. I think that in order to 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 make change effectively, you have to ensure success and that, I think, requires sort of an incremental, you know, evolutionary rather than revolutionary approach to it. You know, having said that, I say again, I, I don't know that that's the guidance that will serve us well. If if we were to, to visit again in a decade and look back, I, I may be very foolish with that perspective and observation. It served me well through my career. But I do agree things are moving very rapidly. And, you know, as a quick aside, Sophie, you know, we're finding a lot of very interesting conversations evolving about teaching and learning that are not defined really by the structures of the institution, mm. and uh, you know, and the and it's one of the reasons as as we chatted, I, I'm so excited to have Tim Ferriss uh, on the program. I, mean, he, I think he's an unusual speaker for an education event, but I, I felt like he was a perfect voice uh, for what we are seeing from the community as we crowdsource our program, and that is, you no know, great interest in this. You know, kind of learning as a lifestyle, and and when I think of Tim, I think of somebody who's hacking learning uh, out of his own, you know, drive and and personal interest and and uh, inspiration, rather than for a credential or or for a you know for a, um, a degree plan or or something along those lines. And I, yeah. I, I I see it in in the conversation about redesigning learning to be more learner centric. Um, I see it in conversations about sort of wraparound supports for enabling students to be able to learn when they come to school. I see it in the context of equity conversations, be it girls in STEM or underserved students, or you know employability opportunities from a, a, a talented um, you know outbound class. Uh, so uh, so anyway, I, I'm really intrigued and, and believe that we're seeing more and more uh, in this sort of intersection of learning and culture. Than, than, uh, than, than we have in the past. And and so I, I'm enjoying that that sort of vibrancy of the conversation.
0: So it's quite funny because I met my parents as we speak and they're obviously retired, so we we always remind them that we'll be paying for their pensions and make them feel bad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, it, I agree. And, and that, would, that would be maybe one final observation or on, on this point to share is we're seeing a lot, uh, again, I, I, I've mentioned employability. I think we're seeing a grander interest in sort of workforce development and and fundamental lessons and learnings uh, from the education sector about engagement and teaching and learning and chronicling mastery and credentialing. We're we're finding a lot more conversations. I'm excited, for instance, we have a a panel going on where Arizona State University is afforded, you know, free access to learning for employees at Starbucks. Um, And... uh, and I think there's a big report coming out over the impact of that. And so, again, I, I think where we go to learn, what we choose to learn is increasingly driven by the individual, uh, and, and certainly as we look at, at longevity, um, it, it creates some really fascinating conversations going forward. So, again, we're, we're finding a lot of renewed interest or growing interest, I should say, in Sort of workforce development, training, retooling. What fundamental lessons of learning should be applied in those environments? And we're enjoying helping host that conversation at South by Edu as well.
0: That's really interesting. So, is so that is funded by Starbucks, I'm guessing. So it's a partnership with the university.
1: Actually, you know, I, I, I may, you know, with a big asterisk that I think I'm portraying this correctly, uh, Sophie. But I, I, I had dinner uh, a couple weeks ago with a guy who I think is one of the real. Sincerely disruptive, innovative thinkers in in education. Um, uh, he's the gentleman who's the founder and uh, CEO of EdX, uh, that uh, MOOC provider that is a nonprofit uh, funded through MIT and Harvard. And and Anant, I, I just again really appreciate his 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 thinking and his strategies and approach to sort of enrich learning more broadly. And, and, and as we were visiting, he was sharing how. You know his his platform for MOOCs is open and freely available, which I, I think is uh, is amazing. And again, I, I may not be characterizing this entirely correctly, but I believe that uh, the uh, the uh, opportunities for Starbucks employees were on top of the Open edX platform; that they had free access to those courses. And that, uh, should they wish a credential as in a recognition that the course was, uh, was produced by MIT and they wanted an MIT credential, they could remit a fee and receive that credential if it was important to them, but that If it wasn't, they had access to all of this fundamentally for free. And so I'm really, again, sort of loving this model of of more dynamic, nimble learning opportunities um, than than perhaps what we've been talking about for the last hundred years anyway.
0: Well, on that note, uh, I think that's all we've got time for, Ron. So I hope you have a good rest of your day and run up to South by Southwest EDU. And uh, no doubt I will see you in the middle of March.
1: Well, I can't, I can't wait, Sophie. And again, we so appreciate the media partnership and collaboration. Uh, we know you've got a, 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 a really a, a vibrant and growing community and we're happy to welcome you and support your community at EDU as well. So I can't wait to see you at Austin Wilson.